0: Good morning, if you, you do me a favor, uh, in your, if you need it in your seats, uh, the Bible's there, I want you to open to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, chapter 9, we're going to be reading the first nine verses, and then we're going to skip to verses 17 through 19, and it's a pretty particular passage, is a passage about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, so follow along with me if you wish, if otherwise it's going to be up on the screen in bigger font for people like me. Uh, Let's read. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus for three days. He was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And then the end of the story. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul... The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And this is God's Word. Please take a moment and pray with me. Come Holy Spirit, come as surely as you came on Saul of Tarsus and we received back the Apostle Paul. Come Holy Spirit on each of us today for your message is radical and it is powerful and we must hear it. There is no other hope and there is no other way. Come, Spirit of Jesus, break us that you might heal us, blind us that we might see. Open our eyes then to see you, our ears to hear you, our hearts to receive you, that we too might be forever changed. We ask this in the name of Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. We've been hearing for several weeks Here ...about a vision campaign, about a vision... ...which of course has led to the question... ...what's the vision for Grace Redeemer Church? Why is it here? Why is it in Teaneck? What's it supposed to be doing? What's it supposed to be? The early church has a lot to say to answer that question... ...because the early church accomplished one of the great feats... ...of social and cultural change in the history of the world... A small, insignificant, new group not only survived 300 years of persecution under the most powerful empire in the Western world, but actually thrived under it. And in thriving, transformed that Roman empire. They are our forebears. That was their vision. And the question we have to ask and answer is how? How did they do it? Because that power is our power. How did it happen? We could look at a lot of different aspects of the early church and glean different insights. We could go to texts in the Bible that were a rallying cry for the incredible generosity of Christians then and now. Passages that say things like none of them saw their possessions as their own but shared everything in common, giving to those as they needed. We could look at texts that speak of a radical new social order where everyone is equal. Texts that say things like there are no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. But here in this passage, finally, we get to the secret of their power the source of the power of the original radical Christianity that transformed the world. And in fact, all those other texts we talk about stem from this. And the answer is short and simple and blunt. Christianity converts people. Christianity converts people. In the explanation of Christianity that stops anywhere short of this is misleading. Now in this passage that we just read, we're looking at the conversion experience of Saul of Tarsus, and it may seem too spectacular, too unusual, too unique to be of any instructional value. If you're a Christian here, you may be thinking, well, I didn't see bright lights and hear those voices. That wasn't how I became a Christian. If you're someone who's not a Christian, the odds are that somewhere in your head a switch clicked off about the time we started reading this, because you look at that and you say, "That's why I don't believe. That's too spectacular. It's too radical. It's too miraculous." So why do we look at it? And a couple reasons. Here's the first one. One of them is the person who's the subject of this experience himself. On the road to Damascus, he is Saul of Tarsus. By the time this is done, he will become known as the Apostle Paul, arguably one of the most influential men in history because he was predominantly responsible for the spreading of this radical Christianity throughout that Roman Empire. This was a man who could stand in the midst of turmoil and struggle and difficulty in peace and contentment. This was a man who could face death itself and say, Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Isn't that who each of us wants to be? Don't don't we want to be the kind of person in the twenty first century in the stresses and the strains of, of, of life here in the Metro New York area, in all the struggle and all the turmoil, and be at peace and content. And at rest, don't we want to be the ones who can sweep away that illusion that death is not of concern to me right now and just think of the moment, look death in the eye and say, where's your sting? I do not fear you. That's one good reason, because conversion created not just the Apostle Paul, but Christian after Christian after Christian who could do this throughout the early days of the church. And it has the power to do it now. The other reason why we look at this is because even though this is a particular conversion case and very spectacular, if we look at it closely, we find principles that apply in conversion regardless of whether you have this road to Damascus experience. And there's three of them really. The first one is conversion is necessary. The second one is conversion is reasonable and rational and the last one is conversion is a spiritual process conversion is necessary it is reasonable and rational and it's a spiritual process now when I say it's necessary it was necessary for Paul but the temptation in our society today is to say well you know We've advanced a lot farther in 2,000 years than this overwhelmingly agrarian and more simplistic society. We're much more complex. We don't think like they do. Things are different now. But in reality, that's not too true. Because when we, the beliefs that we hold in our society now, are very similar to the beliefs that the Apostle Paul had. Here's the first one. Many people today think, I don't need Christian conversion. That's a little too radical and too extreme. I just need to live a good moral life. I just need to be a good person. Paul's the pinnacle of that thought process. Paul is a Pharisee, one of the stricter sects of Judaism of the day. Right? He's someone, he belongs to a group that's taken the entire Old Testament. You know, the preponderance of the books in the Bible that you hold there in front of you and boil it down to 613 laws. 365 of them are positive, they say. Thou shalt do this. 248 are negative. Thou shalt not do this. Pharisees' goal was to keep these 613 laws flawlessly. To live the moral life flawlessly. Later on in the New Testament, after the book of Acts, Paul tells us he did just that. In Philippians 3, he says that he kept these laws flawlessly. He was moral, and he was decent. He was a good person, and he absolutely needed to be converted. Why isn't this enough? Because of another belief that we have that, interestingly enough, Paul had too. Another one of the beliefs in our society is, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you believe it and follow it with all your heart and with all your might doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it and follow it with all your heart and with all your might. And it is no more true today and terribly misleading than it was back in Saul's day. Adolf Hitler believed in something with all of his might and followed it faithfully. And he was wrong and millions of people died. Saul of Tarsus believed. In something with all of his might. And followed it faithfully. And he too was wrong. And he killed a lot of people. But in the process. Was slowly murdering himself too. Think of it this way. It's the winter season. You guys feel the nip in the air now right. I remember as a kid we used to go out and go skating on a local pond right. And you always had the moment of truth. You remember these days you know. So you put your toe out there going. The ice are going to hold me. Right. You know, now imagine there's two skaters out on these two ponds. There's one guy who's out here skating on a quarter inch thick sheet of ice. He's getting ready to step out. He absolutely knows for certain that that ice is going to hold him. And there's another one who's getting ready to step out on a pond with six inches of ice, and he's not real sure, and he doesn't have a lot of faith. I don't know if it's going to work. I think this could give in, just kind of toeing his way. Both of them skate off. The one who skates off on the quarter-inch ice immediately falls through. The one who stumbles forward on six inches of ice ends up he's okay in skating. Why? It wasn't the faith that they had. It was the ice, Right? It's not the amount of faith they had. It's the thickness of the ice. It's not the greatness of your faith that makes a difference. It's having faith in the right thing. To say as long as you're really sincere in your belief, as long as you are strong in your faith, as long as you are a moral and upright person, everything is all right, is just absurd. And we still try to do it today. Isn't that what the Islamic State says? And is it true? Does that make them morally upright and good? Paul was as religious, as moral, and as convicted as could be. But he needed to be converted. And so do we. That's why when Nicodemus Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, he doesn't even entertain the pleasantries. He just cuts to the chase and he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Later, in, in early, another place in Matthew 18, in, in verse three, Jesus is with little children. He says essentially the same thing. He says, "Unless you become like these little children, unless you're converted to be like them, you will not see the kingdom of heaven." Everyone has to be converted. Are you? Now, that's the first thing. The second thing I said was, that that's the necessity of it. And you can see where our views fail to provide the things we're looking to them for. And only conversion will take us to a place where we can find that. But the second thing is, is that Christianity is also, conversion, if you will, is also rational. Right? It's reasonable. It begins with an understanding of certain historical facts that God became a human being, this person called Jesus Christ, that he lived on this earth, that he died, that he rose from the dead victorious. Christian conversion starts with thinking. You must engage the evidence and come to believe that it is true. It's not about turning over a new leaf. A lot of times people say, well, I'm going to go to church because I need to turn over a new leaf. My life's not going the way I want it to. I need to live a better life. That is not primarily what Christianity is about. It is an aspect that you will see come out of it. But that's not it. Conversion is at the heart, and conversion begins with being shocked rationally. It was reasonable for Saul, and as we read this text, Believe it or not, it's reasonable for us. Now, why do I say it's reasonable for Saul? Take a look at the story and look between verses 3 through 8 or 3 through 9. And you'll see a lot of details. Saul says, I'm walking on the road to Damascus, a blinding light driven to his knees. Here's a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? There are others with him. He stands up blind. Others are with him. They're speechless at what transpires. Why? They hear something. They can't tell entirely what it is, but they hear something incredible. If you look at the two other accounts of this in Acts 22 and Acts 26, where Paul is standing first before a crowd in Jerusalem and second before Roman authorities, you see more of the details come out. The same story is there, but he has other details to give to them. And, and, and in one of them, you realize that those that are with him see a light, but they don't see the person in the light. Paul does. They hear something, but they can't distinguish it. But they know that it is so incredible and so supernatural that they're speechless. Now, why does Paul go to all the trouble, not once, but three times to register this? To record this event. Why does he do it? Think about it this way. What if what's Paul... Then Saul of Tarsus saw and heard happens only to him. He stands up. He's blind. He says, "Did you guys see that? Did you hear it? And they say, see and hear what? What are you talking about? If you are Saul of Tarsus, wouldn't you begin to wonder if you're a little delusional? Wouldn't you begin to wonder if maybe you're hallucinating? Well, I see it and I hear voices, but nobody else does. Maybe. But the fact is somebody else did, more than one, and it's recorded again and again. Why? Because Saul is doing, he's showing us the facts he researched when this happened. Did this happen? Let me weigh the evidence. Let me take a look. And even as spectacular as this event is with a light and Jesus appearing and and voice, him speaking to Saul, even that fits in. In a way, with the reason of of Saul of Tarsus, because you have to understand who he is. Saul of Tarsus is a disciple of the rabbi Gamaliel. Gamaliel's grandfather, Rabbi Hillel, was the founder of one of the two sects of Pharisaism, one of the two schools of Pharisaism, where people came to be schooled, where Paul went to be schooled under Hillel's grandson, Gamaliel. Paul is steeped in rabbinical tradition. It could be argued he's on a rabbinical quest in this request for papers and authority to go get people and bring them back. He's been steeped over and over and over in what the rabbinical tradition has to say about people like Abraham and Moses and Gideon and others. So when a light flashes and a voice comes from heaven to talk to him, as astounding as it is to Saul of Tarsus that it's happening actually to him, he remembers it happened to Abraham, and it happened to Moses, and it happened to Gideon, and it happened to others. And that's with him. He's like, it's happened before. It's reasonable. He doesn't enter this by stopping his mind from thinking, which is frequently our society's view of Christianity. He enters into the process of conver- conversion. By starting his mind to think, maybe for the first time. Now, for us, as we step back, those facts are there several times, three times, so that we have them in front of us and we have the accounts and we can weigh the evidence. And if we step back and look at the New Testament as a whole, maybe the Gospels in particular, the story of these historical facts that are at the heart of conversion, the birth The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We find it far from being unreasonable. It is the most reasonable thing that we have to consider. Many people look at the stories and say it's fantastic. But nobody looks at the manuscripts that contain the story to see if they're credible. We have tests we apply to ancient documents and look at them. And it's not a matter of whether the New Testament meets those standards. It's a matter of whether anything can meet the standards set by the New Testament. The second best attested document from ancient history, the Iliad, has 647 manuscripts. The earliest one dating to a period some 1,600 years after the original was written. The New Testament, the best attested ancient manuscript in the history of the world, bar none, has over 20,000 manuscripts, the first one dating to within 15 to 30 years of the writing of the original. Everybody who wrote one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is an eyewitness to the events that they saw that happened and unfolded in an incredible way. And they wrote about them and circulated letters about them and stood in public and spoke about those events to other people who were eyewitnesses, many of whom were hostile. The possibility of lying about it is non-existent. They couldn't have gotten away with it. And they even attested with their very lives with the martyrdom of 11 of 12 of those people. Going to death rather than recount that Christ was born. Christ lived, Christ died, and by God's grace, Christ arose. Like our 21st century society today, Paul is very educated, he's very intellectual, he's a very rational person. He himself must have questioned the whole experience because he didn't want to believe either, but he wanted to look at the evidence. We too in order to be converted, to become a Christian, to find that we, we were looking for and trying to live a moral life on our own or following something we know not what faithfully, have to look, have to be engaged intellectually. The evidence will, in one sense, take you almost to what appears to be an entirely different world. Because of the essence of Christianity and how Christ became a person, Christianity brings an entirely different perspective on how the world was made, how it works, what is involved in it. It's an entirely different foundation to life, and it's a it's an under, different understanding of what's truly important. This understanding must begin with a rational look at the events of history. Paul started by thinking conversion is definitely more than thought, but it is not less. And that takes us to the third and final point. Christianity is not only necessary. It is not only reasonable and rational and must engage your mind. It's a spiritual process. We see this in two ways. First, when you take a look at verse 8, you see where Saul of Tarsus has been blinded by the light that he saw. Now, if we look at the account from Acts 26, the third account of Saul's conversion, we see Jesus talking to him. And after he says, Saul, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, he says, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light. It's when Saul is physically blinded that he first truly sees. Now, we don't know how to be physically blinded, but there's a principle here to understand. The principle of conversion that you look at of the Holy Spirit working in your heart and in your life is that the way you know that you're getting spiritual sight is that you're aware of your spiritual blindness. Isn't that true? You start to see things in a real and a three-dimensional way that you didn't see Him before. There may have been concepts you knew. You may have, had a, you have a concept of God, but now you're like, I never saw Him like this before. Not just His power and imagination in creating all things, but His mercy and His grace and His overwhelming outpouring and love at the cross. I begin to see my heart and my motives in ways that I didn't see them before when I masked them from myself. I begin to see this thing called my sin, sin being another thing of of which people have a concept but are not too eager to explore and say, oh my gosh, that's mine. And that leads us to the second thing. It's not just spiritual sight. It's a spiritual piercing. Imagine for a moment your Saul of Tarsus driven to your knees on the road to Damascus and all of this comes flooding in on you. But it's not just at that instant. It's a process that has begun with bits and pieces throughout time. And one of the most powerful pieces in Saul's conversion, we find in Acts chapter 7 in the stoning of Stephen. Because here's Stephen before the Sanhedrin saying the exact same thing that Paul will preach for the rest of his life. That Christ was born. And Christ lived, and that he died for me and for my sins, and that he rose again. And he will be stoned to death for it, and Saul of Tarsus is going to help him do it. Saul of Tarsus watched as a man, facing the most intense turmoil and stress and difficulty that a person can face, met it with grace. He saw Stephen's peace. He saw Stephen's grace. He saw a man looking at people, picking up rocks, and getting ready to kill him in a very lengthy and painful and brutal way and say, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. And he heard Stephen say, the heavens are open, and I see the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of the Father. Take me if you want. I know where I go. And that sticks with you because no matter how hard you try to persecute, you can get angrier and angrier and angrier and try to break these people. That keeps coming back. And so Saul of Tarsus, driven to his knees on the road to Damascus, all of a sudden is overwhelmed with the fact, I didn't see clearly at all. I tried to be a moral person on my own, and I couldn't do it. My sin is too deep. My motives convict me. My thoughts convict me. My desires convict me. I followed this zealously, faithfully. I was convicted, so convicted, I helped in the murder of innocent people and I'm trying to help in the murder of more. And oh my gosh, what did I do? But the word of God called the sword of the spirit doesn't just cleave, it heals because as soon as it pierces us with the depth and the magnitude of our sin, it heals us and transforms us With the balm of God's grace, with the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that is change. That's what Saul of Tarsus was looking for under Gamaliel, persecuting Christians, trying to follow religiously, if you will, 613 laws. He had to abandon all that and find it in the arms of a risen Savior. From that, from the ashes of Saul of Tarsus, we get the Apostle Paul. From that, each of us rises a new creation, forming a community, newly created, going forth to share that love, that grace, that mercy, and the good news that that power to look death in the eye and say, is that all you've got? is yours for the asking and for anyone else's who will receive it. That's the vision that change the Roman world. Is it our vision? Let's pray. Oh God, how can we when we look at Saul of Tarsus not see ourselves God forgive us drive us to our knees blind us with your light that we might truly see pierce us with your sword and convict us of our sin that in our repentance we may taste your forgiveness your mercy your love and be filled with your spirit a spirit so powerful it gives us all creation Come to us, Lord, as you did with Saul of Tarsus. Change us from people who insist on doing it our way, of controlling our own life, of determining what we believe will be moral and right, to being those who will willingly serve the one who is just and good and right. Change from people who say, this is what I want. to a community of people say here I am Lord send me out to share the love and the wealth and the power and the beauty that you've shared with me we ask for this vision your vision we ask for it in the name above all names the name of Jesus Christ our Lord crucified and risen and victorious